0: And it gives
1: us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrush.
2: And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis.
1: We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint
2: a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. On the show today, personalized care for those with irritable bowel syndrome and how IBS can be improperly treated. And an international database looking at the health of children around the globe and where healthcare delivery for children is falling short. But first, 64% of Australians regularly partake in sport, but only 23% of those with a disability are participating or have the opportunity to. For those with a disability, there are a number of barriers that can prevent sport participation, including transport, availability of facilities, but too a competitive and intimidating environment that can also leave those without a disability feeling intimidated and deterring them from participating altogether. Simon Darcy from the University of Technology Sydney Business School is an avid sports enthusiast and expert in social inclusion, particularly in the world of sport. Simon says there's a lot that can be done to lower the guard of the sports world to be more inclusive, and this applies to both the grassroots sports setting and the professional one.
3: I think it's important early on just to understand that disability is not a homogenous construct. There are people with mobility disabilities, whether they're wheelchair users or use crutches or some other mobility aid, those with vision impairment or who are blind, hearing impairment, or who are deaf, those with cognitive disabilities, those with learning disabilities. There's a whole gamut, and of those people, there's also differing levels of support needs. So for a lot of people with disability... They don't need extra supports to participate. But for those people that do, uh, there's a compounding of barriers that just make things a lot harder. So if we take a one that a lot of people will be familiar with, somebody um, like myself, uh, who uses a power chair, uh, there are some transport issues. Because uh, we can't use standard vehicles, require modified vehicles. Modified vehicles are a lot more expensive. Or if you're not able to use public transport, then you use uh, paratransit, uh, wheelchair-accessible vehicles, and while there's a government subsidy of uh, 50% up to $120, that that's still a pretty expensive way to travel. And of course, in places like Sydney, it's a big geographic space, and disability sports aren't in all areas. They tend to be concentrated in certain areas, and there's a uh, in the recreation area, there's a concept called distance decay basically the further you are away from a facility or activity the less likely you are to use it and again equipment's expensive depending on the sport you choose uh, are you a cyclist no i'm not huh? i'm terrible at it <laughs> <laughs>
0: depending
3: on the style of cycling you're in you know your bike could be anything from 500 to twenty thousand. Um, and similarly depending on the sports with disability that you're in Um, you've got those costs plus in the disability area there seems to be a price gouging that goes on with specialist equipment so it's that extra problem and of course if you are using the um, taxi transport subsidy scheme which is a wonderful scheme in many ways it's still an expensive way to travel and if you're on a pension or your family's got a number of children then uh, it becomes very very costly to participate on a regular basis if you have to travel for it.
2: So what is the alternative to that? Is there an alternative?
3: This is where when we look at sport development pathways, if you're um, a person without a disability, you can pretty much join a local club or there might be um, unorganised activities in your area. It's all pretty close. But for people with disabilities where those activities aren't close then those barriers actually don't give them the benefits of being involved in sport. And one of the things we found, whether somebody's a grassroots participant just doing stuff for fun, the thing that's common from the grassroots to the elite level is the sense of belonging that's created. So you don't feel you're on your own, you're part of something bigger. There's all these other people that are going through the same stuff, particularly if it's age group or whatever. Sports and clubs become very family-like. And where you're not able to access that, that means that there's a really important part of life that other Australians are getting access to that you're not. So you're more isolated. You um, have feelings that that isolation affection mental well-being and also you're not getting all the health benefits that are associated with sport as well
2: in addressing these barriers how do you kind of bridge bridge this divide or or what is a tactic to democratize it for lack of a better word
3: well one of the things that a number of organizations have been successful at doing from either the grassroots right through to the elite level is to promote more inclusive practice and that's by uh, offering training programs that give coaches, volunteers, others involved in the sporting family an understanding of some really simple things to do to make their sport more inclusive across the spectrum of not just disability, but you can throw in Indigenous people from different ethnic backgrounds so that that sport becomes more representative of those in the community of where they're living. And
2: how would, you, how would you get, say, a coach to be more inclusive? Is it in the language? Is it in the actual sport practice itself?
3: Again, one of the things that comes across not just in the sport area, but positive can-do attitude. So rather than going, oh, computer says no. Mm-hmm. And one, the, the other thing we do need to acknowledge is, you know, 70% of all sports are fully run by volunteers. So a lot of people think of, you know, the professional competitions in the AFL, Netball, uh, FFA, but you know, the club land is exclusively by volunteers who have all sorts of pressures on them. Some regional associations, state associations, and national associations are making it easy by offering training programs and giving the resources to make the transition to be a more inclusive community sport for people of different abilities.
2: Do you think that would also go to try, like, in a way to bring down the wall when it comes to sport? Because for me, even when I was growing up, I was very intimidated by, you know, sports players, the idea of going to, like, a club or anything like that. Do you think implementing those programs or kind of changing the language could kind of strip it down a little bit and make it a little bit more inviting for, I guess, anybody?
3: It's a really interesting observation you have because... Even, you know, there's many stories of nightmares that people have had from their PE teachers at school or local coaches who didn't understand that, you know, maybe the under-10 netball team just want to have a bit of fun uh, and put the ball through the hoop and not aspire to be national champions, uh, you know, within their first season. Uh, You know, belonging is around the sociability of sport. So, okay, you win, you lose, but, you know, you have a nice social occasion that goes with it. So I'm really sorry that that was your experience when you were younger uh, because, uh, you know, it shouldn't be. Uh, It should be a welcoming environment uh, that seeks to skill people up uh, to undertake challenges that are matched to their abilities at the time. And that's a really good pointer for people with disability or without disability because if you haven't done activities you just can't get thrown into it you've actually got to learn stuff
2: and I guess that is an interesting point to raise it's for someone who might live with a disability and want to engage in a particular sport not necessarily having to go to a designated facility that would cater for someone with a disability perhaps when there is a mix of I guess the general population what is the process of bridging that divide
3: The Australian Sports Commission uh, has a spectrum called the inclusion spectrum. And the inclusion spectrum, uh, you might have a disability-specific sport and there's nothing wrong with a disability-specific sport and you might end up at the Paralympics doing uh, wheelchair rugby or um, goalball for people that are blind. And then there's integrated sport. That's uh, sports where people with disability and those without disability play together and we're seeing some interesting ones that are on the disability side. So we've got some of the adapted rugby league includes both people with disability and those without disability playing in a similar comp in their wheelchair area and then a more mixed nature in other versions of rugby league, right up to power wheelchair level. And then you've got fully inclusive sport. There's a lady who is a table tennis player that plays in both the Olympic and the Paralympic teams. And the other area that I think most sports can do a lot of work on is this idea of the um, sporting family. So that is the officials, whether that be referees, club officials in managing teams, doing behind-the-scenes support, being involved in setting up the tuck shop, sorting out the on-field pads and line marking, doing the refereeing. These are all things that even if you're not at a fighting-fit participation way, you can still get the benefits of being involved in clubs.
2: Professor Simon Darcy from the University of Technology Sydney Business School.
1: What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures, each week an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app, just search for Think Digital Futures.
0: You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3.
2: Around 12% of the population among the developed world will experience irritable bowel syndrome. That's nearly 1 in 10 Australians. IBS is an incurable syndrome that will present itself through abdominal pain, constipation, or diarrhoea, or sometimes as a mix of all three. Causes of IBS vary. Sometimes it's as an onset of stress or a growth of foreign fungus in the body, but recent research indicates it may have more to do with the health of the gut than originally thought. Nicholas Talley from the University of Newcastle spoke with Liat Samaglu about the gut IBS link and how we should be taking a more personalised approach to treating the syndrome.
0: So look, IBS is something that can occur at any time in life, although it's more common in in younger people than older people, but it's still any time of life. And once you get it, unfortunately, most people seem to have it long-term. It can come and go, but it doesn't go away. However, when you get into older age can start to apparently disappear. So it may not be there for the whole of one's life, but it certainly can be there for long, long, long periods. And, of course, that causes distress and affects people's personal relationships and their work and other important factors in their lives.
4: So this new research that you've uncovered about IBS, that each person sort of needs to have their own sort of tailored approach to treatment. How was IBS treated before this new information came out?
0: Look, IBS, you know, traditionally has been treated based on treating the symptoms, just trying to control those as best we can. And that hasn't worked terribly well because You know, the the, the medications that we would use and still use, actually, provide some relief but don't take all the symptoms away. So that's why it's important to uncover potential causes and hopefully treat those causes. And now, you know, we are trying to personalise treatment and I think that there's certainly progress. And so, for example, reducing stress levels and anxiety can be helpful in some people but not in others because their IBS maybe directly related to stress in some cases, but in others, it's a consequence of the IBS, not a cause. So, you know, different treatments for those people. Diet can be very helpful for some people with IBS and uh, needs to also be tailored. And then exercise can be helpful. And then, of course, if that doesn't work, one can use medications that can change, for example, the microbes in the gut that potentially can help people with IBS.
4: Could we focus in on the relationship between the gut and the brain for a moment? How was this, this uncovered?
0: Well, I think uh, you know we're not the only people who've obviously been studying this. There's a number of groups around the world, uh, including our own, who've been looking at gut-brain relationships. What we discovered, and which we've confirmed now uh, in three separate studies, is some people with IBS their IBS appears to begin in the gut and not in the brain. And then the brain, then anxiety and factors like this become apparent. In other words, the gut is the primary driver. While in other people with the same type of symptoms, their problem appears to begin centrally in the brain itself perhaps. And then they get gut problems. So that's been a really important observation um, and one of our contributions because it tells you that you can't treat everyone in the same fashion. And then the other piece of work that we did or other pieces of work we've done, in addition to looking for microbes in the gut that might be linked to IBS, is we've shown that if you have some subtle inflammation in the gut and you get circulating chemicals from that inflammation that can also directly affect your brain and that can be blocked by medication that blocks those chemicals. So that's really been interesting, we think, because it suggests very strongly that, again, the gut can directly affect the brain and in some people with anxiety, perhaps, maybe their gut's the problem, not something else. That could be very helpful for treatment in the future.
4: What are some of the symptoms, I guess, to look out for with IBS?
0: Typical symptoms are you get abdominal pain, tummy pain. It tends to come and go. It can be crampy pain or or more constant pain. But there's also usually there's associated feelings of bloating or excess gas or even swelling of the tummy. And you have diarrhea or constipation or both diarrhea and constipation. And it's the combination of those symptoms that's very characteristic for IBS, particularly if it's coming and going and it's been there for quite some time.
4: Is IBS misdiagnosed a lot? For instance, someone who might have something a bit more chronic like Crohn's disease or colitis might be initially told they have irritable bowel syndrome. Like, How would they find out they have either?
0: Very good question. So there's no doubt, there's no doubt, that you can misdiagnose. And there's evidence that, you know, when people first present, sometimes they are mislabeled. So getting the right diagnosis is important because the treatment's quite different. People with inflammatory bowel disease, that's Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, they can present with typical sort of IBS-like symptoms, you know, which get misdiagnosed early on. And even to complicate it further, if you've got inflammatory bowel disease, you can develop... IBS. How about that? So it's really complicated. So yes, it is important to think about that, but some simple blood and and stool tests can often guide the doctor about whether to further investigate for inflammatory bowel disease.
4: And getting something like a colonoscopy down the track?
0: Yep, if you need it. Not everyone who has (laughs) IBS symptoms needs a colonoscopy. In fact, most people don't, but, but... Certainly, if there's any indicator features that suggest it's inflammatory bowel disease, uh, then you, you, you may well need a colonoscopy. Yes.
4: What advice would you give to people who have recently been diagnosed with IBS?
0: Well, the first thing I think to say is IBS is, uh, you know, never leads to any loss of um, loss of life. So there's no risk of you living less long. Because you have IBS. In fact, we did a study many years ago which suggested people with IBS uh, on average, and this is only on average, of course, live about two or three days longer than people without IBS. Now, that's two or three days in a lifetime. <laughs> it's a very small amount, that's anyway. <laughs> so, certainly, you shouldn't worry about that. Um, but, but obviously, what, what I advise patients if they have IBS type symptoms is to try stress reduction techniques because sometimes that can be really helpful um, and sometimes it's not. So you need to realize that you know it's worth a try but it doesn't work in everyone. That you can change your diet and that can make a really big difference in, in a number of cases. Well worth trying and you may want to see a dietician to get some specific advice because there are some different types of dietary approaches you can take depending on what symptom you have. And exercise. Many people with IBS are younger people who can exercise. Exercise can help reduce symptoms, reduce pain, improve bowel function, which can be very helpful.
2: Nicholas Talley from the University of Newcastle speaking to Liat Samaglu. Developing countries face a whole range of health challenges, from access to clean water and sanitation, to food and healthcare services. And in many of these countries, it's children who struggle the most. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are funding a mammoth project that is taking research on children's development from places like Africa, Indonesia and South America, and attempting to translate data sets from millions of kids into practical research. Louise Ryan, Professor of Statistics at the University of Technology Sydney, is involved in the project and spoke with Ellen Liebeder.
4: What sort of
1: data sets are we talking about? Like what in particular about child health are we looking at here? Basically the idea is that most people should be between plus or minus two. So For example, if you are looking at somebody's blood pressure and they say, oh, you've got high blood pressure, well, the way that they determine what's high for blood pressure is that you're beyond that upper 2.5 percentile of a, quote, typical normal population. Or similarly, if you look, oh, your child's, they're not thriving, they're not growing enough, they're in that lower percentile. So a lot of what's determined in... The health setting to be normal or not normal is when you're in in the tails. Right. So what they'll do with a lot of outcomes, health outcomes is they'll, they'll rescale them to this, what they call the normal scale, the, the Z score. So the normal values are between plus or minus two. And if you're outside that range, then it's an indicator that something might be wrong. So they tend to use this kind of thing as a way to sort of track where does this person or this child sit compared to what they should look like if they were like in a normal healthy population. And so when we're looking at developing countries and the children in those developing countries, you're looking at the Z-scores for a variety of different health yeah. issues? So the World Health Organization has developed them for uh, height, weight, BMI, body mass index, head circumference. Why head circumference? Oh, it's got to do with, it's supposed to be a something of a marker for developing brain and so on. You want a nice big head so you've got lots of brains in there and and that kind of thing. But it's just a marker of growth. Um, They can actually look at things like that even prenatally as well. Some of our studies in the Gates repository are kids start to get monitored prenatally as well. The really disturbing thing is when you look at some of the studies, what will happen is the kids might start out okay, but then those Z-scores just start to plummet. If you had a kid in Sydney where the Z score was maybe minus two and a half, you'd be thinking, oh that's a bit low. You might be a bit worried about that kid. We have lots of studies where the kids are minus four, minus five, like really, really, really low. And so when you start to see those sorts of values, you think, my goodness, what's going on here? Are these kids? Um, they're not getting enough nutrition, or they're not getting the right nutrition. They're not having the right environment to help them thrive. So what does this repository look like from your end? Oh. <laughs> It's huge. And one of the challenges with the repository, it is overwhelming. There's over a hundred studies and some of the studies have hundreds of thousands of kids. So we've got millions of kids in this repository. The studies have not been done, you know, they're all different. So, you know, they measure things in different ways and doing different repeated sort of follow-ups on the kids and interested in completely different sorts of questions. Some studies have very detailed information about nutrition and we're measuring blood biomarkers for different nutritional parameters and so on. Other studies were interested in brain development and had MRI scans and all sorts of things like that. So it's absolutely overwhelming. I mentioned before that a lot of what a modern-day statistician or slightly more generally a data scientist has to do is not only do the modelling but also find ways to handle the just the sheer volume and complexity of the data. We are currently working on some tools that allow a user to try to go in and just figure out what's there, what studies have measured what. It sounds like a simple question to ask, but it's actually really difficult because the way it's set up now, if you really wanted to say, oh, okay, I want to know which studies are measuring um, cognition, to answer that question, you have to go in and look at all the studies and say, okay, what are the variables that are related to cognition? Which studies are measuring that? How many kids have they got? It could take you months just to get the code in place to go in and pull out all of those studies. So what our team is currently trying to do is to develop some tools. We're using this technique called R-Shiny, which is a way that you can create interactive tools that somebody who might not be super sophisticated from a programming point of view can use these tools to navigate around and figure out what's there. So how are are you comparing the data then if if each study is using different methods? Well, that's part of what we're struggling with at the moment we're at the moment trying to look at what we call a meta-analysis, looking at the relationship between diarrheal experience and subsequent growth for the kids, the way we're doing it. We're going through each individual study, doing an analysis, and then extracting out, say you're trying to predict child growth and you want to know how does the experience of diarrhoea affect child growth. So you run what's called a regression analysis. And there's, there's a coefficient that's a thing that, captures the relationship between those two variables. So it might be that like, if I get 10% more diarrhea in the first year of life, well, that will correspond to a 20% decrease in the rate of growth in the first year of life, that kind of thing. So you have these estimators that you're trying to extract from each study that tell you what the relationship between diarrhea and child growth is for that particular study. But it's quite nuanced. You have to take account of, you know, how old were the kids, uh, what was their gender, what was their, the socioeconomic environment like, all sorts of things like that. Each study is different, as you say. That's why our strategy is to do each study-specific analysis separately, save all of the pieces from each of those separate studies, then pull those together and you can create these plots that tell you about what is the overall pattern, what is the study-to-study variability, and you can get a, a nice sense of what is that overall pattern, what is the study-to-study variability. Where does Shash hope that all this data goes? Like, how is it going to be used to inform? Uh, yeah, well, so I believe that his vision is, in some ways, it's, it's a ridiculous vision. He wants to have every kid in the world having a great life and thriving and, you know, developing physically, emotionally and cognitively into a, you know, highly successful life. So his goal is to use this repository to help understand who to intervene with, when and how. I think, as I've heard him describe it, there's, even though you might say, well, the Gates Foundation has lots and lots of money, it's still a limited pot and you have to make decisions about what kind of interventions am I going to invest in? which kids do I intervene on and do I inv- intervene when the kids are first born or do I intervene when the mothers are pregnant or maybe even before the mothers are pregnant? So it's trying to come up with a decision tool that helps the people who have the purse strings and who are able to make decisions about which interventions to fund. It's to help them make those decisions so that you've got the best bang for the buck in terms of changing the outcome for children.
2: Louise Ryan, Professor of Statistics at the University of Technology, Sydney, speaking to Ellen Beter. And this interview originally aired as part of a collaborative episode between Think Health and Think Digital Futures. You can listen to the full episode by subscribing to Think Health on your favourite podcast app and going to episode 58, How Data is Reshaping Healthcare. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you like what you heard, you can go to our website, 2SER.com, to find out more. We are also a podcast, so subscribe to Think Health on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a review. It really helps us get discovered. This show is made possible by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next time.